Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast exploring rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. Maybe it's time we rethink how we look at the numbers, especially numbers around GDP and population growth. Maybe it's time we stop looking for the big fix that will save a rural community. And perhaps smaller is better when it comes to rural sustainability. Maybe what we really need is to do smaller better. This week, we're pleased to have Karen Foster as our guest to talk about these ideas and more. Dr. Foster is Canada Research Chair in Sustainable Rural Futures in Atlantic Canada at Dalhousie University. We wanted to talk with her after reading about her ideas and insights around rural sustainability. Ideas that really challenge some prevailing notions about what success looks like and how to get there. Among other things, Dr. Foster challenges the idea that bigger is better when it comes to investing in rural communities, and she questions a dominant focus on growth, especially when we consider environmental issues. Dr. Foster sees opportunities in alternative business models, such as cooperatives, in revitalizing rural communities, and doing a better job of mobile service delivery, including getting university programs into rural communities. And this week, we apologize once again for our golden retriever, Reagan, who decided to intervene on this topic. Please forgive the odd bark, and I assure you the growls are from neither the host nor our guest. Um, Karen, we're really interested in talking to you. I read uh, a recent article that you wrote that had to do with a, a bit of a different point of view on rural sustainability. And I noticed that you have a very positive sounding title as Canada Research Chair in Sustainable Rural Futures for Atlantic Canada. Uh, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about what that means, what your work entails in that role, and maybe how you came to be interested in this topic. Okay, um, so what my what my work entails, I guess, um, I so I was hired into this um, this chair position, um, which was created um, because you know universities can apply and get a certain allocation of Canada Research Chairs, and um, the people in my department in sociology and social anthropology at Dalhousie felt that there was a need for someone uh, whose research was focused on Atlantic Canada, but rural Atlantic Canada in particular, because it's not the sexiest topic. There's not all kinds of grad students doing research in this area, and there's not a whole lot of people who are fashioning careers out of studying small communities in Atlantic Canada. So I came to do this work by applying for that job, and it just kind of happened um, it's really the dream for an Atlantic Canadian trying to resettle in Atlantic Canada. But I, um, I had just finished a postdoc um, at St. Mary's University in Halifax, and I had kind of designed that position myself, like sought the funding and designed a project that would allow me to live in Nova Scotia because that's where my partner and I wanted to settle. And um, just by pure coincidence, it had a, a little component of looking at rural and regional economic development strategies. And so I kind of was able to combine that expertise with some older expertise from my doctoral studies on generations and work. And I made a pitch for the job and I said I was going to study generations and work in rural Atlantic Canada and also study economic development from kind of a critical perspective. And um, I guess the committee liked that approach. And now we're, what, four or five years 
later. And I've been doing pretty much that kind of work the whole time. So I can tell you a bit more about what I work on, if that helps. Sure, that would be really interesting. Okay, so right now I've got two major projects on the go. One of them is on occupational succession in rural industries. So in plain language, I'm, I'm looking at this kind of perceived problem where uh, young people in rural families are not interested in taking over their family businesses. So farms and fishing operations, but then also just small businesses and and even professional services like lawyers and accountants. There's this uh, kind of anecdotal evidence that when those businesses are ready to be handed on, the the so-called next generation uh, in the family is not prepared to take them on doesn't doesn't want to do it don't they don't they have different career interests and so there's this idea that there's a a looming crisis of succession so i'm trying to do some more research into that to see if there's an empirical basis for the um the crisis and then if there is um i'm trying to explain why it might be happening and whether there's anything that can be done about it policy wise you know whether that's preventing the crisis or figuring out ways to adapt to it. So that's uh, that's one major um, stream of research. I have smaller projects on different regional and rural economic development strategies. So um, one that I've done quite a bit of work on is on import replacement as an economic development strategy. So again, just making it really simple, the idea is that rural economies leak their dollars to other places when people spend money on products that are produced outside the community. And so if you can figure out little ways to plug those leaks, you can keep local wages circulating longer and contribute to healthier economies. So it's really kind of turning the, the normal narrative about rural development is like, you know, you have to grow these big export industries and that's where we're going to put the money in. And, and uh, you know, that's where government investments are going to go is trying to attract these big producers. And we're going to try to scale up lots of little operations so that they can export products. But you end up with this curious situation in rural communities that who, you know, they're right on the ocean and everybody fishes lobster, but they can't get a fresh lobster in any store. You can't get a, you know, a lobster roll with local lobster that hasn't been like shipped around the world to be processed before it comes back. So uh, yeah, that's the the second project. And um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of other little ones that I could get into if, if we go there. Well, that's, it's really interesting. And I think uh, one of the things that you've talked about, I think, is that sometimes we think big is better, but um, maybe small and small enterprises and not worrying about uh, scaling up to be huge. Is there a healthy approach around thinking small as opposed to big? And I know myself growing up in Atlantic Canada, we were always looking, of course, for the big economic government investment that's going to save everybody and maybe there's a little bit of you know despite the um report which is terrific and giving us some guidance and moving shifting that culture maybe there's still a legacy of that around um is that your feeling that we need to shift our thinking a little bit around um how we invest and what size of investments we're making yeah big big time you know i i think there's loads of evidence that local ownership matters to local communities if you have a small or even medium enterprise that is locally owned. They tend to last longer. They they provide more stable employment opportunities to local populations. And so in our region where there's not a whole lot of capital, there's not a whole lot of money, and there's also not a gigantic labor force, you know, if we focus on local enterprise, it's going to be small by definition. And we have to be okay with that. 
and also be okay with the idea that maybe the jobs that are in some of these local businesses are going to be seasonal and people are going to rely on multiple streams of income and as they have in our region forever. I think we've done a lot to just push against those tendencies when like, you know, we have seasons, we have seasonal industries that can't be made year round just because we have this vision of of the ideal job or the most productive type of citizen. So yeah, I, th- I think the tendency to always think that bigger is better is a real problem. There, there is such a thing as diseconomies of scale. Things can get too big that they get congested and inefficient. And uh, there's a lot to be said for small, nimble enterprises. And one of the problems that people trying to run these businesses face is that regulations are not quite geared toward their size and also funding opportunities aren't targeted toward you know being small and staying small people will look at a little mom and pop shop and they just think you know how can you make it bigger how can you start exporting and tapping into new markets when like maybe maybe it's okay if we just have a little store or a little production outfit that caters to a very small market it's an interesting point, and I think uh, one of the things I read in your article was about that maybe we're hindered by too narrow a focus on growth and efficiency when we talk about the future, whether it's urban or rural. And of course, there's some big challenges facing Canada. Do you think when we look on the larger scale that we need to just kind of uh, rethink our maybe even obsession on growth and efficiency? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think the the biggest you know, reason that we have to start thinking against growth is climate change. It's the fact that like human engineered economic growth is one of the primary triggers of global warming. You know, the more big industry we have, the more um, what they call throughput, you know, like like things being turned into other things and giving off various forms of waste. The, the more of that we have, the worse it is for our environment and even stuff that is pitched as being sustainable and green has a lot of throughput. So the only way that you get rid of or reduce that risk is to think smaller, to to think, you know, do we need to have agricultural systems with such giant footprints? And, you know, do we need to be eating mangoes all year round, you know, just because we like the taste? Or should we start to think about living a bit closer to home and, and like eating and living in ways that are appropriate to our climates? I wanted to talk for a minute to Karen about the numbers. You uh, would argue that we sometimes focus too heavily on numbers. And of course, you know, you hear people say that data rules. When we look at our rural communities, how are we limiting ourselves by looking at the statistics and out-migration, economic uh, trends? There's a lot of data out there. But when we look at those maybe uh, too exclusively when we talk about how we're going to survive and thrive as rural communities. How do you think we might need to challenge that and look at things a little bit differently uh, from the numbers perspective? So numbers are important. You know, it's important to track trends in data on things like migration and even on things like economic productivity on, you know, sea level and species and ecosystems and all this stuff. Like numbers are very important, but they also they in and of themselves, they don't tell us what to do. They don't tell us what's good or what's bad. So we have to have a sense of our values first. And I know that's a big ask because, you know, there there is no such thing as our collective values. Um, you know, it, they don't just exist in, you know, out there somewhere in a book, like they have to be deliberated on and, 
and all that stuff. But I do think that as communities of whatever size, we could probably agree on some fundamentals, you know, like that we prioritize clean air and water. I, I can't imagine you'd find someone who would disagree with that. You know, we want people to live longer and healthier and happier lives. You know, I think most of us want safe communities. Most of us want uh, the freedom to move, whether that's, you know, move around our community throughout the day or, or to pick up and move our whole lives somewhere else. A lot of these values can be directly linked to things that we have in the in our charter of rights. And we tend to kind of treat those as like, you know, complaint driven things like, you know, we'll protect those only if they appear to be threatened. But when we focus on just the numbers, the only value we're usually thinking about is growth. We're thinking like, you know, if GDP doesn't go up at a certain rate every year, then that's a bad thing. And if population doesn't go up at a certain rate every year, that's a bad thing. And yet we're able to hold that at the same time as totally contradictory thoughts like, you know, we don't like global warming and we um, we believe that the planet is getting overcrowded. And yet, you know, in, if you're in a region where it seems like the population is shrinking and the and like the economy is shrinking, you're just thinking grow, 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 grow with no sense of like how that might actually affect the quality of life, which is what's truly important. And the other, I guess, thing that numbers don't really tell you about is power. And that's something that sociologists are good at asking about and studying and what I mean is that if you focus on economic growth and you say like growth in itself is, is good, we want more money to be made. That says nothing about who makes the money and how it's distributed and, you know, whether taxes are collected that allow some of that money to be put back into the public purse and fund things like hospitals and roads and schools. And so GDP going up might mean that like two people are getting very rich. That's totally conceivable. So we, we have to think beyond just economic growth into better quality of life for more and more people. So we've talked about a few of the negatives. On the positive side, you've been doing this research for a number of years in Atlantic Canada. What are you seeing that encourages you? Uh, what, what are you seeing in, in some rural communities that um, you know might be a good model to look at uh, elsewhere? There's lots, but I can give you two that are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. And the spectrum I'm talking about is like, you know, very innovative, forward thinking things, and then kind of old traditional methods that seem to just be reliable. So in terms of like new, exciting techie stuff, one thing that I've noticed anecdotally in rural communities is that there's a lot of development and economic activity that is happening out of view of longtime community members who are looking for more of like the bricks and mortar style development. So I've talked to a lot of people who've lived in communities a long time who say, you know, oh, the, the main street is uh, it's all just shuttered windows and, you know, nobody's working down there anymore. The factory has closed, et cetera, et cetera. And they see all these signs of decline. But then I'll go into the main street area and I'll see there's a coffee shop. And in that coffee shop, there's all kinds of, you know, professional, but like working from home looking people. And then you ask around and it turns out that there are people who are involved in like tech hubs and maker spaces and people who are doing more of their work remotely and online who are, you know, living and making a living in rural communities in non-traditional ways. And so I think that there's some of the doom and gloom that you kind of absorb when you drive down or in, into a rural community and you see the shuttered storefronts. Part of it can be tempered 
knowing that there's other kinds of activity happening and that people are making it work in ways that we don't recognize uh, as easily as development and economic activity. And they're doing it in like a sort of a, an updated version of the old ways, which is, you know, to have multiple income streams and to, you know, do some informal under the table work as well as your main job uh, and maybe even to do it seasonally. So I think there's like we need we need to figure out new ways of capturing what's happening in rural communities to go beyond those headlines of like another factory shutting down or what have you kind of on the opposite, more traditional end of the spectrum, I have been, I guess I'm most optimistic about the potential for alternative business models, particularly cooperative business structures in helping revitalize rural communities. One of the challenges that people have, if communities want to start something or if if uh, you know an entrepreneur wants to wants to start something in a rural community, if they don't have the capital to get started, it's you know it's a huge risk. It's hard to get funding for something where you can't prove that there's a big market for it. But if you could have people who are pooling together their resources and then also sharing the profits, then it's a whole different ballgame. And so, one of my favorite examples is that the two longest continually running fish processing facilities in Newfoundland and Labrador are cooperative ones that were started by uh, fishermen in the wake of the cod moratorium. And they, you know, they are proof that in the bleakest of times, if you get people to work together and to agree on like a, on a profit sharing uh, and risk sharing structure, then you can start businesses with very little, you know, individual capital. So what I'd love to see is just more emphasis on the cooperative as a business structure for rural entrepreneurs and even for communities who are thinking, you know, we need a X type of business here you know, people could come together and figure out how to get it started without needing to be saved by, you know, a millionaire riding in on a white horse. Yes, I think a lot of our rural communities would say they're fairly short on millionaires that have white horses and are ready to oh, come yeah. back. And, yeah. Um, but, and of course, Atlantic Canada has a very strong history, you know, in the cooperative movement and was a driving force in the cooperative movement around the world. So that might have lapsed for a while, but maybe, you know, the time is right to bring some of those things back. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it has lapsed. Um, I was in Saskatoon recently and saw that they are doing a much better job promoting cooperatives. They have this uh, this institution called Cooperatives First. I'm looking at their placard right now. They do a great job educating people on how to start a cooperative, or they can educate employees who are in businesses where the, the owner is saying, you know, oh, this is not viable, I'm going to shut it down. They can educate employees on how to take over a business that's at risk of closing. So, you know, there's, of course, lots of barriers in the way. But, you know, if, if we only had that mentality, if a factory is, or a, some kind of small production facility was about to close in a rural place, people could save it. They could save their own jobs and they could probably actually come out better for it by forming a, a co-op. A great idea. And you mentioned earlier, Karen, a, a little bit about running into people in rural communities who are teleworking. And it seems to be a, a growing trend that people have the option of working remotely and they're maybe in and out of a head office and that sort of thing. But do you think uh, if we look at rural Canada or anywhere in rural Canada, are we well positioned to take advantage of maybe a growth in that area? And um, maybe we need to mobilize to do more to attract 
uh, remote workers to come into our communities and enjoy a better quality of life? Yeah, so I think we we have like some major advantages working for us and then some major disadvantages. So the, the disadvantage is, of course, that broadband coverage is really spotty in, in rural communities. So I'm hopeful with the um, the creation of this new uh, Minister of Rural and Regional Economic Development, I think she's called, uh, Bernadette Jordan. She has uh, made this a federal priority. And while she doesn't quite have an economic development strategy written yet, one of the first things that's on her plate in her mandate letter is to improve broadband access in rural communities. So I think the federal government is taking it very seriously. It's within their jurisdiction. So I think we're on the right track there. And they're doing it for those reasons that not only that, you know, an acknowledgement that to be a full citizen now, you kind of need access to the internet. And also that it opens up lots of economic opportunities, not just for telework, but also for businesses that want to bring their products to, to markets through online sales. So that that's a disadvantage that I think is soon going to be turned around, I hope. One of the advantages of a lot of places in Atlantic Canada is that you can live in a rural community, but still be within a fairly reasonable driving distance to an urban center. So, you know, looking at Nova Scotia and PEI, you're never more than a couple hours from Halifax or Charlottetown. And in New Brunswick, you know, you're it, it's possible to be further away from an urban center, but still there's a lot of little communities with a lot of character that are within driving distance of Fredericton or, or Moncton uh, or St. John. So I think unlike a lot of really big provinces where you can have like truly remote communities, we've got a lot of little communities that can offer the benefits of being close to a city. And, you know, like there's no reason why you couldn't live there and do your job remotely and then travel into one of the closest centers, whether it's for meetings or just to have like a fun night out you know i've done some other research on youth out migration and it's clear people make decisions about where to live on the basis of economic factors but also relationship factors you know can i find a job and can my spouse find a job is this a good place for my kids to grow up and go to school and potentially be able to stay and find work but then also lifestyle factors can i go see a hockey game can i go you know see a concert if i want to and not have to get on a plane to do it Karen, when we talk about the rural and urban interests, and of course, uh, some people who are contributing to rural communities might be dividing their time between the two. We tend to sometimes talk about rural Canada, urban centres. We tend to talk about them sometimes as very different interests, but I think you see it more as an interdependence. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, they're they're absolutely interdependent. You know, I think it's easy to see the dependence of rural communities on urban communities insofar as, you know, unfortunately, a lot of rural places have they don't have the stores they need. They have to drive into town to to go to a big box store to get, you know, anything beyond the staples or they have to order things online. You know, there's a lot of commuting that goes on between rural places where, where rural workers are uh, commuting into urban centers for work. But the other way around, like urban people appreciate and look for opportunities to get outside the city for recreation. We absolutely depend on rural places to grow our food, to provide our energy in various forms. We, you know, most of us buy Christmas trees from rural places. We, you know, we've got wineries and, and breweries and all sorts of craftspeople. And you have to go to a rural place to uh, to do various kinds of recreation and hobbies. You know, you, you name it, we're, we are interdependent. If we in, say, Nova Scotia, for example, 
didn't have the contrast between Halifax and its rural outlying areas, I mean, we'd be a totally different place. We would lose a lot of the attractiveness that we have as a place. You know, we're, we're attractive to immigrants and we're, we attract young people back, even if it's only to visit. So, yeah, I just think I think once you kind of open your eyes to that, it's really difficult not to see how interdependent we are and how the answer can't be to pull rural people out, out of their communities and, and entice them or, or force them to move into urban communities out of, in the name of efficiency. Because then, you know, who grows our food? Who mines for minerals? Who, who does any of the energy exploration work? Who does the tourism work? Like, you know, you, you, can't, you can't have those things and have completely depopulated rural communities. Right. And one of the things we hear in that argument is about the cost of uh, rural service delivery. And you've talked about um, advocating for more mobile service delivery for rural communities. And I suppose we do see that happening to some extent, but maybe not nearly as much as it should. What are your thoughts on that? So there is some. It's patchy. But you see that there are certain specialists who have, uh, you know, a day a week when they go, you know, go into neighboring rural communities, medical specialists, I mean, and kind of just go on a little tour of clinics or even houses. The libraries have been very good at getting into mobile service delivery. But I think that we could do a lot more. One of the things that we're not very good at is getting the universities into rural communities. Like we have the technology to be able to do that. We, We have online courses, but we don't necessarily do everything we can to ensure that people can access them you know a lot of our a lot of online offerings assume that people have their own personal computer with good internet so you know there's there's talk at Dalhousie even of of trying to figure out you know how could you offer online courses but maybe still feed them into some central location in a rural community like an old post office or or a school that's at risk of closing you know, there, there are ways to deliver things to people so that they continue to live in their in the communities that they want to and, you know, and save money and, and be close to family and all that stuff. You uh, you name it like we, there are um, options for, you know, getting small satellite versions of things in rural communities. So, you know, one of the things I think about is like Sobeys, for example, there are a lot of little communities that don't have grocery stores anymore. And Sobeys has this model where they'll open these teeny tiny little stores in cities. So if you go, if you're in Toronto, you'll see like a tiny little Sobeys that's, you know, no more than, I don't know, uh, 400 square feet. And it just has the basics. I have never understood why they couldn't do something like that in a rural area that employs, you know, it might employ two people. It would have a little bit of fresh food and and then all of your staples. And, you know, there are plenty of spaces available in rural communities to do that kind of thing. And, you know, what what we hear is that either you get a gigantic Sobeys or you get nothing at all. Yeah, I think I've seen, um, actually, I think Sobeys might have a small one like that down in Antigonish County out in the Beach Hill area. Have you come through that new development there that's just off the Trans-Canada? No, but that makes sense. They tend to put them in with gas stations. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's no reason why we couldn't have more of that. There is, uh, there's a little one like that in Wolfville too, but again, that's kind of like in the, kind of in this, in the town. But yeah, what, one of the proposals that I've heard recently as well was, you know, there are post offices are, are under threat. The door-to-door delivery has gone in a lot of places and, and now the, the post office itself is under threat of disappearing. But in most cases, Canada Post still owns those 
buildings and they could be used for something else. So like the Postal Workers Union is saying, like, why couldn't they be the place where you can charge electric vehicles? Why can't they, you know, be a, a hub for any kind of mobile service delivery? Why can't they do postal banking? Like we have all of these tools that would allow services to reach into rural places without having to build the bricks and mortar stuff. Like I, and the thing that I find frustrating is that I think there's this misperception on the part of urbanites that rural people are, are, you know, out there collecting EI and, and, um, and working under the table and not paying their fair share of taxes and then saying, Hey, we want a hospital and we want this and that. And I, I have yet to meet that person. I hear people who are working hard and contributing and they're saying, I would just like to be able to see a specialist without having to travel to Halifax or, and, and even then that that's actually kind of a tall order. I think most people recognize that you got to travel for a specialist. It's like, I'd like to be able to do my banking in my community. We could do that easily. And I, and you know, why, why don't we, why don't we invest in those services so that people can stay? And I think you would, you know, you'd solve your labor shortage problem that a lot of industries in rural communities face because you can't convince people to live there because the services aren't there. So, like, I think we've got, we kind of got the cart before the horse trying to get uh, industries to set up in rural communities when a lot of them won't even set up because they say, well, you know, what do I do if my worker gets injured and your, your emergency room is closed four days a week? Or how am I going to convince people to live here if their kids can't walk down to the corner store or get a summer job, for God's sakes, at a grocery store? So I think we need to think about the amenities first sometimes and, you know, have more of an, if you build it, they will come mentality about it. That makes a whole lot of sense. And uh, you've been at this research work now for about five years, uh, Karen. So as you look to the next five years, what are you hoping will change in terms of, there's a lot we talked about that could change, but in terms of priorities, what would you like to see change in how rural sustainability is supported and hopefully how we see it taking shape five years from now? I would like to see more of the opportunities that technology affords us for mobile services to be used. So I would love to see, you know, more of this emphasis on distance learning and uh, and using the post offices to do and using postal banking. Like, I think we just need to get more creative. We have to find a middle ground between the the, you know, you either get a big, giant state of the art thing or you get nothing at all. And I think. I'm really hopeful that rural development is going in that direction because everybody I speak to who works in this field is now talking about that. They're saying like, there's no one size fits all approach. Rural communities are all different and, and we have to be prioritizing small and medium enterprises and, you know, boutique type uh, service delivery. So I think it's going in that direction. I'm just hopeful it keeps going. The second thing that I'd like to see is more rural communities taking charge. I know that is, that's very difficult, especially in a place that is, um, say, shrinking or, or um, that doesn't have a lot of people with energy. But there are, are examples like Bridgewater, which is a, you know, it's not exactly rural, it's a small town, but they have set renewable and local energy targets. They have public transit now. They are really starting to say, like, what do we want for our community in terms of quality of life and how do we make that happen? And they're just doing it. They're prioritizing environment and sustainability in a way that is improving quality of life in in Bridgewater. The same thing, uh, I'm only naming these because I'm familiar with them. I I hope there's other examples, but um, Annapolis County, their economic development strategy revolves around 
clean air, clean water, and more local energy and food production. So they're not talking about growth targets. They're talking about how do we do things more sustainably and with people and their well-being in mind. So I think like rural municipalities have a lot of latitude to, to make these kinds of decisions and to think really far into the future. And I hope that that's catching. I guess the other thing that I that's kind of been on my mind is the phenomenon of Airbnb and the mixed, I guess, the, the goods and the bads that it's bringing to rural communities. And I just hope that we get better at regulating these kinds of platform companies that, you know, they, they do some good. Airbnb does bring tourists into places that may not have other accommodations, but it's also threatening the stock of affordable housing in rural communities where that stock is already low. And, and so I hope that rural communities are taken into account when and if our governments finally come together to do a better job regulating those new, you know, supposedly disruptive industries. Well, thanks very much, Karen. And it is an encouraging note that you're hearing a little bit more of a dialogue happening around some of these positive, uh, you know, uh, looking ahead kind of uh, creative options. I guess a lot yeah. of what we're talking about is being more creative about we yeah. ha- look at, at rural community sustainability. So thanks very much for making some time uh, in this uh, study week break to be with Rural Spark. And I look forward to touching base with you again in the future to see how some of your research uh, work right now is shaping out in the future. Please do. Thank you very much. Thank you, Karen. And thanks to everyone for joining us this week. Please drop us a line with your ideas for upcoming episodes at info at ruralspark.ca. The Rural Spark team includes content producer Catherine Murphy and technical producer Tara Seaberth. Music by Jason Shaw. We wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural Canada.